the White House is dusting off plans, stop us if you've heard this before, to move the FBI out of downtown D.C. In its latest budget request, the Biden administration is calling on the FBI to move its headquarters to suburban Maryland or Virginia. The idea has been around since 2014, but was scrapped by the Trump administration, which proposed building a new FBI headquarters on the site of the old one downtown. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman has the latest. And Jory, what are they saying and what are they proposing for money for this? What they're proposing for money in terms of this is nothing at this point, but it's really just more of a policy statement, which is uh, pretty significant in its own right here. They're saying that definitively they want to move ahead with a suburban campus, and that means suburban Maryland or suburban Virginia in this case. The administration comes out as saying that the J. Edgar Hoover building in downtown D.C. can no longer support the long-term mission of the FBI, and they're calling on GSA and the FBI to work together over the next year to identify which is going to be the final site for this and build a facility that can hold at least 7,500 personnel at the FBI. Wow. I guess they'll call it the Barbara Mikulski FBI Center if they move it out there, because I don't think they're going to name anything out of J. Edgar Hoover from this point on in the FBI. And I can understand. I mean, the old building downtown is about as charming as something you might find in Pyongyang. What have other administrations proposed here for FBI? What are some of the historical proposals that might be dusted off? Yeah, quick history lesson here. This has been kicked around for so long now. This has been uh, around in the works for since at least 2014 here. This was an idea under the Obama administration. The plan back then was they were going to do some sort of cash and land deal where the developer to build a new suburban site would get some amount of money in cash, would get some payment in the form of the existing J. Edgar Hoover site that never really materialized. And then, of course, the Trump administration comes into office and they had an entirely different vision for the FBI headquarters. They proposed raising the J. Edgar Hoover building, building a new headquarters on that site. And that ran into quite some opposition. Congress, for the entirety of the administration, passed annual spending bills that effectively blocked the Trump administration from getting any funding to build that headquarters that planned. The Trump administration went so far as to ask for this money in COVID spending bills. That was ultimately never something that materialized. But we heard from someone who has been on the front lines of this, Senator Chris Van Hollen, and he described how this has just been such a drawn out process that at least for now has a conclusion. They discarded the the plans that have been in place uh, for the FBI at one of three new potential campuses. Um, So we were successful over those four years at at keeping that alive, um, and now we're moving forward. So we're really pleased to see this uh, moving forward again. And we have two great Maryland sites um, that are really well-equipped to provide the kind of home the FBI needs and deserves. Well, he said they're moving it forward, but you said the Biden administration didn't put a price tag on it. So does that mean, therefore, that Congress will appropriate money for this, at least if Van Hollen has his way? That's the idea. It also doesn't hurt that Senator Chris Van Hollen is on the Senate Appropriations Committee. I asked him about that specifically. He says that that is going to be a top priority for him in 2024, which is the first budget cycle that the administration will be asking for money for this project. That's, of course, up to Congress to decide, but seems like there is some appetite for this to go forward. And let's not forget here that Congress actually got this whole idea started in the first place in the recently passed omnibus spending bill for the remainder of fiscal 2022. They actually called on GSA and FBI 
to brief the appropriations committees on the viability of a suburban FBI headquarters. All right. And under standard procedure, the General Services Administration becomes the agent here and would choose the site and hire a contractor and an architect. But doesn't really Congress have a lot of weight in where the thing actually ends up? Absolutely. This is a case where the power of the purse reigns supreme. They have a lot of say and a lot of pull here as evidence for what we saw in this budget cycle or the one that we're currently in right now with fiscal 2022. Maybe they could move the commanders downtown to where the FBI is and put the FBI where FedEx Field is. Just kidding, folks. That's not going to happen. And what would happen downtown in reality if the FBI were to move out of there? Well, the FBI wouldn't be moving out of D.C. entirely. They would need some presence for kind of day-to-day things that's described in the budget, keeping touch with the Justice Department, which is still headquartered in D.C., the White House and Congress. What the administration's calling for here is GSA and the FBI to find some federally owned building that's already owned by the government and have about 750 to 1,000 FBI personnel stick around to do that kind of work. I wonder if there's space in the new, not so new now, ATF headquarters out on New York Avenue. That's an idea of what was really been playing out recently is this idea of consolidating a bunch of agencies together. And that is certainly another DOJ component that would make sense, at least on paper. Right. Plus, it's an easy shot out to Prince George's County from that end of town, too. But all right. So what happens next? This budget, this policy request is in the budget request with no money. So in a sense, that kicks it to Congress to appropriate at this point. That's right. And we'll see this play out in the next budget cycle. Uh, That's hard to imagine since we're knee deep in the 23 budget cycle right now. But we have no real idea quite at this point what the ask is going to be monetarily. We know from just the how this has played out with the Trump administration. The GSA inspector general said that they needed about two billion dollars, give or take, to finalize the project. There had been some money appropriated for this for a while. And so that's probably gathering dust in some government coffers somewhere. But $2 billion is roughly what would be needed to see this come into fruition. All right. And what's your best guess for the old building downtown? Implosion or wrecking ball? Well, I live downtown and I see the current state of the J. Edgar Hoover building. It's pretty well netted because it's crumbling. Uh, It is I think by all accounts, decrepit. I don't think there's a long life in store for the J. Edgar Hoover building. Yeah, the way it sounds, it could kick it over. He wouldn't need the wrecking ball. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. Check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, Welcome, and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader, and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person, personally, was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent, and what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. 
Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on 
what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective about my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.